Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story. We know it has been some time since we've been with you guys. Uh, sorry, life happens. Uh, we definitely had a number of shows lined up that kind of fell apart last minute over the course of the last month, and it's been a while since we've been back with you, but we are certainly happy to be back today. Today we are joined by Mr. Ryan Wallerson. You obviously probably recognize this voice from Season Pass and FCFC, but certainly a very popular writer within the community as well, too, whose illustrious career spans performances for Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, Orange County Register, 442, and many, many, many other outlets as well, too. So, boys, pleasure to be back with you. And Ryan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Evening, gentlemen. Good to be with you. So we just found out as we got on that Ryan is actually in Orlando, not in the bubble, but transferring back to and from the bubble for each day. And how is everything out in Orlando right now, Ryan? It's surreal. You know, obviously the COVID-19 numbers in the state are what they are. And being elsewhere and hearing about them is one thing, but being here and kind of seeing just the general culture and the way that people are responding to the uh, to the pandemic and adhering to social distancing practices or not, you kind of you kind of understand how it's uh, getting to a, a point when you step into a Walmart and sixty percent of the people, six out of every ten people you see, aren't wearing masks. Uh, so you know, it's uh, I, I've spent every day that I don't go and cover LAFC, and I got here on a Monday for yeah the first game was Monday the thirteenth, and then. Uh, this past Saturday, obviously, against the Galaxy, and then they don't play again until Portland on this coming Thursday. And between these games, I'm just inside. Like, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I've got family and friends here. I'm not really seeing anybody. There's a bunch of stuff uh, in this area I like to do because, uh, like I said, I have family here, and I'm very familiar with it from my childhood. But not eating at Golden Corral. I'm not taking in the sun at Orange Lakes. I'm not doing anything. Right now, I'm hanging out in my in the back room of my grandparents' house, and this is probably where I'll be until... LAFC in Portland kick off on Thursday. So it's a lot of, you know, self-distancing, ensuring that I get out of here as healthy as I came here. I uh, had to do a test to get a double negative bloods and nasal swabs, not as part of my accreditation for the tournament, but more peace of mind for myself and being able to tell anyone who asked. But, you know, so far, so good. I knew I wanted to come down here to cover a tournament that we hope never happens again. And after last night's result, I mean, that's the biggest L.A. Derby result that we have in LAFC's young history. And I'm definitely glad that I got to see it firsthand. It was um, no pumped in crowd noise, just sitting with a bunch of journalists and media people, you know, football people, football minds, the types that I've missed uh, during these months in isolation. It's good to be back among them. But, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot more going on in the world besides football. So you kind of balance that against the fact that you're happy to be back. It, it, it's an interesting dynamic all the way around. Well, happy to hear that you're being safe. Sorry you're going to miss out on your one fishing and one golfing trip that uh, seems like the rest of the players were allocated. But happy that you're over there and you're safe and we're getting a little from the field perspective as to what's going on there. So as far as entering, exiting the bubble, what that media experience is like, kind of take us through a day in the life of being on scene there. Sure. So, uh, you know, I pull up just outside the ESPN wide world of sports. They've got like a little police caravan right at the front security screening people coming in and out. I call my contact, the MLS PR man, and he 
rolls out on a golf cart to ferry journalists in and out from the road, but Ubers and personal cars and such have no have no place on the complex. We come in, I have my credential, I have to scan it, which then activates a temperature check uh, that I have to pass in order to gain access to the facility. And then there's another thing to scan. It's um, there are lots of security, you're not getting in without a credential and the credentials are few and far between because of the social distancing measures that uh, the tournament is taking with media, press box. I haven't been in one that's had more than eight journalists in it. All of us are spread out. Hand sanitizer abounds. Things get uh, wiped down every night. They're doing their best to, to to keep us safe, and I appreciate it. And if they're going through those types of measures for us, I can only imagine what it's like for the players and the coaching staff inside the bubble. So all things considered, I do have to commend them for doing you know, their best to try to keep this tournament going off with as little as a hitch as possible. Yeah, but it feels like the last few rounds of testing have, uh, there's been zero tests. I think there was a lot that led up to the tournament where tests were happening left and right. Teams were dropping out. And a lot of people thought that trend was going to continue throughout the tournament, but it seems to have, uh, knock on wood, uh, not been any positive tests around the bubble of late. Uh, is that something that you've experienced as well on the press side? Uh, yeah, from all my conversations, mainly with uh, LAFCPR, have uh, been very positive in terms of the trend that you know the tournament has taken since the since the initial dropout, since they lost to uh, FC Dallas and Nashville, and had that uh, one positive on the Vancouver Whitecaps where he had to take multiple other tests to confirm his status for play, but the team didn't drop out. I think that's the last bit of positive testing news that I've heard since then. Everything has been pretty quiet and. You know, knock on wood, as you say, we hope that continues. Yeah, it's interesting, this the isolation aspect of it. You know, uh, Jonathan was a guest host on Somos' podcast uh, a week or two ago, and he and Julio interviewed uh, Jordan Harvey, and, and Jordan was talking about how there is this, it's an awkward uh, adjustment period where you have to find t- find things to fill your time with in between practices and, and games just because, you know, people are taking the utmost precautions and making sure that they don't come in contact with anything that could jeopardize their health in any way. It's everybody down here. Health has to be the the paramount objective. You know, we're down here to try to make up some games and give out a CONCACAF Champions League spot and win. And, you know, the teams are trying to win a pool of money. But at the end of the day, the most important thing for people to leave Central Florida with is their good health intact. And that goes for players, for coaches, for you know, media, or even for the, you know, the everyone down to the grounds crew. Every, everybody here is taking a risk. Obviously, nobody wants to sacrifice their health in the name of a soccer tournament right now. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to execute both where, you know, the tournament is finished and everybody here can leave with their health intact and happy they were able to do it. Sincerely wish uh, your good health and, and hopefully your safety throughout the remainder of the tournament. Obviously, the risk uh, that you're taking to bring this content to us is certainly appreciated. So thank you for that. But Speaking of content, did we ever get some yesterday? My goodness, what an amazing game. Very curious to hear your perspective on it with you being there for the action. Yeah, um, what a match indeed. You know, it it started poorly for LAFC, frankly. You know, nobody ever wants to start a match with an own goal. You don't want to give up an own goal at any point in a match. And coming out of the Houston game where they had to dig themselves out of that 3-1 deficit, I said going into this Galaxy match, even on season pass, that they need to start better. They need to be able to control the early stages of the game. And, you know, for the second straight match, they didn't do that. In the first half, the Galaxy were playing very physical. 
They were clogging the holes, especially in the middle. They were keeping LAFC from building that attack from the back through the middle up top like they like to do. There were a couple of instances where you were able to see some quality positional play, but for the most part, the first half was devoid of it. And I'm sure that they got reamed out by Bradley at halftime, regardless of the goals that they scored, because, you know, they were lucky to go in 2-2. It looked like they were going to go in 2-1, but obviously a couple of moments of brilliance help them bridge that gap but they were moments it, it, both of them were kind of a, against the tide of play but whatever efforts the galaxy were able to put forth in the first wholeheartedly broke down in the second and lafc just completely ran them off the field i mean after a certain point and you know the galaxy head coach kind of admitted to such after the match the galaxy just stopped playing those last two goals was just it, they just got outworked by lafc in manners that you can't really look at LAFC and say, wow, they, they really out-muscled, they really out-pizzazzed them in that instance. I mean, the last goal where uh, the ball is swung into Rossi to finish and, and stoppage time in the second half, it gets past two defenders and the goalie. And the space between all three players and the ball is less than two feet. I mean, that's... Even if you get the ball and you own goal, and you kind of trade own goals to end the game, that's another horrible way to end the game. The score, the goal, the score rather is the same, but at least you can say, I got there. And I was able to you know, stop that play from happening, but you're able to stop Rossi from getting a fourth goal. But I, I didn't see a whole lot of effort from the Galaxy towards the final stages. They knew they were going to lose. They knew they were the inferior team on the field. And, you know, credit to uh, Bob Bradley's squad. Even when they lose, I don't think you ever see LAFC play like that. So that's something that, you know, the Galaxy are going to have to, they're going to have to look at themselves and say, all right, regardless of the skill level we have, regardless of our chemistry right now, regardless of who's hurt and who's not, what type of team do we want to be? And I don't think anybody wants to be the type of team that gets accused of giving up before the final whistle. But 6-2 was a bit of an exaggerated score. You know, obviously LASU poured it on late and they did look better in the second half than they did the first, but LASU had a lot of issues in this game. Mm -hmm. uh, that are kind of painted over by the pretty scoreline. We know that this offense is dangerous. Bradley Wright Phillips continues to return uh, on the investment that LAFC put in him. Uh, Brian Rodriguez is having an amazing tournament, got his first goal, and make, he, he played really selflessly to get those two assists, and he's fitting into that front line really well. The entire front line is coalescing in a way that, is exciting for LAFC because if you can play like this without Vela and then reinsert Vela into this dynamic, I just don't know how teams stop it because the goals are going to be coming from so many different directions. But when they look at the, I don't know how much of this game they're going to look back on because, you know, derbies are different types of matches and I don't know how much of them you can take into, into you know, especially playing against a team like Portland that plays much differently than the Galaxy do. But through two games, I definitely see the weaknesses in LAFC's game, but you also see, you know, their immense offensive prowess. And it was entertaining to see, and they definitely put on a display last night. So speaking of that first half and some of those inadequacies, do you think it's uh, passing through the midfield? Do you think it's uh, not being able to withstand that close oppressing defense that the Galaxy were bringing? What was the recipe for disaster for LAFC in that first half? I think just the decision-making. I think just the the sequence of passing and the execution of those passes weren't quite sharp enough in the first half. And that kind of played into the Galaxy's hands and trying to clog up the middle. If the passes aren't crisp and quick, and you're also playing against a team that's trying to bog you up, then 
you know, you're going to have difficulties no matter who you are. LAFC started to break that down. They started to kind of get ahead or rather behind the Galaxy defense, and then they were able to have their fun in the second. But they have to be better about identifying ways through whatever defense they have to get through faster because, you know, the, the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl putting themselves down in a hole in every playoff game they played, but that's not a recipe for success most times out of 10. That's not the way you want to be playing. You want to be establishing leads. You want to be maintaining control of a game. Even if you have the offense to dig yourself out of a hole, putting yourself in a hole, you know, especially in a knockout style tournament where LAFC are trying to go with, into the next stage, it could come back to bite them if they continue to play like that. Going back to your comments about passing through the middle, I think it took them way too long. I'd say probably until they scored that second goal to figure out that going wide and then going to the middle was a way to kind of get them tired going wing to wing, right? Because they were crowding that, that midfield and they were doing it very well on frustrating our midfielders, not allowing space, being physical. It is a way that other teams have played LAFC. But I, I, one of the things that also I thought was no matter how well they were playing, we found a way to chip away at their lead each time without too much time passing. And I think that kind of chipped away at their confidence as well, right? So in the second half, you go into two, and literally moments after they get a goal taken back because of a offsides by inches, we right. score right away. And it's almost like everything we do, we're doing well. And, you know, they're able to counter it at that point. That lack of concentration led to, I think, kind of putting their heads down a little bit. And then it just opened up the floodgates for our team where our confidence grew and our defensive shape got better once I think Djokovic came off, probably because of the yellow card. But I think we were more fluid with Blessing on the right and Blackman in the in, in the center back position. And then also in the second half, Sifuentes coming on, he really put forth a... You know, I don't think that a lot of the LAFC community knows who he is because of this stoppage in play uh, yeah. between his signing and now. There hasn't been much opportunity for him to endear himself to the LAFC fan base, but he's a quality midfielder. You know, Obviously very, very talented defensively, but also knows how to make a long and a short pass. And he put that on display. Mm -hmm. uh, that ball to Rodriguez that led to, I don't even remember which one of Rossi's goals it was. I get lost in them. It was his third, I think. They're yeah. oh, the ones that yeah. finished the hat trick then. But um, I definitely noticed that they started to play better as the, and for the second straight game, but as the substitutions came on to change the shape, to change the dynamic, to try to insert some energy. And obviously the team has gotten comfortable with certain positional changes in game. Latif going from the, from the midfield to the outside back, Blackman going from in to out on defense, or rather out to in on defense. These are things that I think these players are getting more and more comfortable with. And so it gives LAFC an advantage in the latter stages of games because they're able to make substitutions to bring guys on fresh, but also change guys' positions and change their looks. And that's had you know, positive results for the team consistently in this tournament thus far. I mean, Almunier came in as a winger. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. He came as a winger, and then he scored from a central position because he shifted into that space because Rossi was out wide. It was just incredible how okay. the way they're able to plug and play themselves, even within the game once they've come on, speaks to some of that tactical practice that they've had over the course of the last two, two or so years. So the question is, is LAFC's depth the X factor in this tournament? I think so, because a lot of people wanted to try to take away their status as favorites, if not the favorite, that top tier of teams most likely to win once it was confirmed that Vela wasn't coming. 
but I mean, the team has nine goals through two games, which is, I think, three more than anybody else in the tournament has. So clearly they're finding the back of the net. Offense is not their problem. I think what they need to improve on, obviously, is on the defensive side of the ball. But you got to understand that these games are essentially preseason games for them, the way that this season and this tournament and this pandemic has uh, has shaken out. So you're not seeing anything close to midseason form. Guys aren't in tip condition. The ideas aren't second nature like they would be if they'd been playing consistently since March. But what LAFC do boast is a very, very long list of quality players in their starting lineup and on their bench. And yes, I think that man for man, there's probably not a more talented rock, including the depth, uh, than LAFC is at this tournament. That's only a strength. That can't be conceived as weakness in any way for me. And speaking about the depth, you know, we uh, got to see Pablo Cisniega in at goal. What was your impression of uh, Pablo and how he performed? Yeah, you know, obviously the own goal was tough because it goes off of your defender's leg and it completely changes the angle. You get frozen, although he still tried to readjust unsuccessfully. The penalty, you know, there's good and bad there. Obviously, he saves the first attempt, but he saved it because he left the line too early. Gives Pavone another chance. You'd like to see that type of execution be you know, a little bit better because if he stays on the line and still makes the save, then an even better performance for him. But he, like Vermeer, like after a difficult first half, was able to come back and play a really strong second. He made some saves and played the goalie position. His uh, distribution every time they were building out of the back allowed them to, you know, run four, run a 4 nothing second half. That's important. It's important to be able to win with both of your goalkeepers, have confidence no matter who's in goal for injury reasons, for rest reasons. I think that it was important to get him out there. I was surprised to see him play in such an important game. And apparently he only had about 24 hours of notice, we learned after the match. Mm-hmm. But um, I thought that he did well. He kept them in the match at halftime, despite the fact that they went down, it was tied. And then to you know put a clean sheet on the second half, it was a very similar performance to what we saw Vermeer do. So... I can't say he did any worse. Uh, both of them are going to get better because, again, these are preseason games, basically. But I think LAFC should feel really good about the goalkeeping situation right now. I think both uh, both of their keepers in these two games performed admirably, if not as you know statistically efficiently as you'd like to see. But you know that. So put your uh, put your coach's hat on for a second. What's your yeah. starting eleven going to be versus Portland? Uh, I'm not changing a whole lot. The, the front line, I leave completely alone. Rodriguez, Rossi, and Bradley Wright Phillips are doing beautiful things up there. So that stays the same. If I was going to make a change in the midfield, Francesco Janella has played really well in these first two games. And maybe he's played well enough to earn himself a start. Latif Blessing has come back to make up for mistakes that he's made, but has made mistakes early in both games. So maybe I allow him to return to that super sub spot that he you know, operates really well out of, bringing on huge amounts of energy and fresh legs uh, in the second half. So maybe I do a midfield of Janela, Atuesta, and Kay. The back line, do I mess with the back line? I, I don't mess with Segura at all, obviously. I don't think I'd take Djokovic out either. Palacios has... You know, had been kind of so-so on at left back. I think maybe if you wanna, if you wanted to put Almanier in that position, you could. But I keep Tristan at the right, unless this is when um, we see Andy Nahar for the first time. But I don't think I would want to play him. And if they're going for that top spot and they really want to win and they need the result, then I don't think it's fair to put him in that position for his debut. But he could obviously be a, a if he's available, a short hook asset if. Blackman's not doing the job, but 
I, I don't change too much. I put Vermeer back in goal. I do put Vermeer back in goal. I know he's a veteran. I know that he needs he, – he's himself. I said the more he plays, the better he gets. So I want to see him – I want to see if he can trend upwards. So I would give him that opportunity. But you definitely need to put out a team that's going to be able to play at a higher level defensively than we've seen in the first two matches, closer to what we saw in Houston than what we saw against the Galaxy even, despite the fact that more goals were given up to Houston. I thought that their defensive effort as a whole was actually stronger against the Dynamo than the Galaxy. But, you know, Portland has obviously not scored a lot of goals. They've only scored four goals, but they've only given up two. So the chances aren't going to be as free-flowing, and you're going to have to work harder for them. You know that Portland's going to try to beat you up. They might absorb some cards. They're going to give you pressure. That Those lanes are going to stay clogged. It's not going to ease up in the second half because that's not what they do. It's going to be a challenge. Easily the biggest challenge of the three was always going to be the Portland Timbers. And I don't think it's any surprise that the two are going to play for what should be the number one and two spots in this group. Do you think Portland's going to be as physical in this match as they've been with us in the past? Yes. Yeah. I don't see why they win. <laughs> in lieu of darkness, a sharpness that I don't think any team has, you, know, you don't need to be sharp to play like a bully, frankly speaking. And Portland knows how to play in a way that is frustrating and that mitigates offensive chances, but doesn't get you sent off the field in mass. <laughs> but yes, I think that, you know, they're going to be typically tough against LAFC because they know how to rattle LAFC. They know how to beat LAFC. They, they've done it when it's mattered before. And if LAFC don't play at their best, it may happen again on Thursday. So it's, it, it, it is an interesting setup too, because if, the winner of Group F is going to take on the second-place team of Group E. And the P the teams that are in Group E right now are Columbus at the top, New York Red Bull, Cincinnati. Those are the three teams that have an opportunity to be the second-place team. So if LAFC were to win the group, they would play a team, either Columbus, New York Red Bull, or Cincinnati. But if they end up in second place, they're going to play Group B, and that would be the B2 position. That would either be San Jose, Chicago, or Seattle. So, and, and it's, it won't be San Jose, so it's either going to be Chicago or Seattle. So knowing all of those things, you know, do, do, would you, what do you guys think? Would you guys want to still just go and play your game and not care about who your next opponent is and hope to be the top seed in F? Or would you play a tactical game based on who your next opponent potentially would be? You know, that's tough because you get, you get into trouble when you start trying to dodge people. I remember in 2007, the Yankees were coming down to it and to win the AL East or the wild card. And they would have had to play the Angels if they'd won the East. But playing, winning the wild card, they played Cleveland, who they were confident they could beat because they beat them up in the regular season. And Cleveland eliminated them. So you, you, sometimes you can get exactly what you want and it can all get turned on your head. I think they should just play their best football and you know go for the best result possible. If you don't get the result, then you can feel good about the effort and the intentions. I don't think that Bob Bradley has the mentality where he's ever going to take his foot off the gas to try to aim his way toward you know one path versus the other. That doesn't sound like him whatsoever. Yeah. So I, I would contend that they can you know, put their heads down and go straight for the top of the group with a victory, uh, regardless of where that puts them in the knockout stage. I think, you know, if, if he's also looking at the bigger picture, if they want another supporter shield, it's another three points, right? So... Yeah, and I agree with you. He He's never going to back down from a game, even if it's a coin flip. He's going to want to win that. That's that's just his attitude, his mentality, and what he speaks about all the time. So I don't think he'll change that for this game. And I think 
you know, it keeps it keeps the players on their toes too, if they think you know, well, you know, we're more than likely in just because of goal difference, uh, right now. But if he comes into the to to training or to you know the locker room and says, hey, you know, we're going for it, uh, I want to play whoever's second in this next group. And that's what I like about the team. And you know, going back to the to the match, but my last point is over the last two games and even because of the game Philly and Lyon, I've never felt. That a lead has been insurmountable. It's like two, three goals. I still feel like LAFC is going to create five, six, seven chances and and score two to three of them, which is odd because defensively we're not doing as well as last year. But it's also fun to watch as a supporter and I'm sure for the neutrals as well. Last question I want to ask before we get into the interview of, of Ryan himself. Do you guys think that the fact that Chicharito... Carlos Vela and Jonathan Dos Santos did not play in yesterday's game. That that the ending feel of the derby, right? Like, what is your overall feel of that derby? Do you feel like it's a little bit less of a game? Do you feel, you know, because trust me, I heard from a lot of my Galaxy friends, which of course they uh, talked about it this morning. They're like, oh, you know, you played the B squad, or you know, making up any sort of thing to diminish the effort put on the pitch yesterday. But how do you guys feel, regardless of the fact that the All Stars of of both sides were not there? I feel like they need a better B squad. Like that's the front office's fault. <laughs> like you that's know, like too. I, yeah. I completely agree. LAFC didn't have Diamande and didn't have Vela. Uh, the Galaxy didn't have John Dos Santos and didn't have Chicharito. I think it's a push. I think that without Zlatan, this record in this derby is very, very different. So we know how important one player can be, especially for the way the Galaxy have played against LAFC historically. But as you said, it's about the depth, and that's a front office issue. I mean, if you lose your top two, if you lose your top two sources of offense, you shouldn't, you know, struggle to score. If you lose your best defender, you shouldn't all of a sudden start leaking a huge amount of goals. It's a next man up type of mentality. If you have certain goal, if you have you know playoff and championship aspirations, nobody wins anything of significance with just their starting lineup, and if they do, then they got really, really, really lucky with health. But that's not the way sports works most times. So you got to be able to step in. You got to be able to fill in. And, you know, LA Galaxy didn't have an answer for Diego Rossi. To me, it's just a funny argument. If you tout championships when the other team didn't exist, but then you're saying your best players aren't there, like, you got to play the moment, right? Since yep. existence, then uh, I think LAFC has dominated, of course. The record doesn't show that, but now it shows really how top to bottom the two teams are way different in approach and also in results so far. Yeah. Oh, so now, like two, two, and two. Oh, no, no. How many of yeah, them? No. It's two, no, three, yeah, and two, yeah, I think. Two, three, no, and no. two. Yeah. Is it? There was three, five. Yeah, I guess so, huh? Two, three, and two. But so either way, though, it's nobody has more wins or losses, right? It's really, it's really tied across the board. So one last thing real quick. Where does this Galaxy game rank? in the history of your LAFC Galaxy matches? How does this one stack up for you? Well, see, here's the problem with that question. I mean, on the field, it's number two behind 5-3 because 5-3 eliminated them from the playoffs. It was, you know, Zlatan's farewell from MLS. And it was also kind of the dam breaking on all that frustration, right? So it's going to be hard to remove that from the top spot. The problem with this derby in the overall grand scheme of things is that, you know, it was an empty stadium. The atmosphere for these games is very important, and it's one of the reasons that the Galaxy LAFC games are so fervent. It's because it's two fan bases just, like, going at each other, 
as much as the players on the field defending their squad, defending their shirt, and it gets loud and it gets rocky. You guys know that. Uh, with nobody there, and you know, no the no crowd noise is being pumped into the actual atmosphere. It's all added on television. Um, yeah, no, seriously, I'm. That's the best thing about being at this tournament. I haven't actually watched any games live, so I haven't had to listen to any fake crowd noise, which is great. But without the crowd, without the noise, without the atmosphere, you know, it, it's tough to put this as number two um, overall for me. I mean, the first one, I know that, you know, LAFC lost because Laton made his, you know, first mark on the league. But, you know, being up 3 nothing, the Latif's little dancing shimmy up against the supporters section once that three-goal lead was established, regardless of everything that happens after that, I mean, those are the first the first LAFC goals. It's the against the Galaxy. It's the first time that the two teams played. I think that that's still really high up for me. I'll say that it's that that the five three is one. The first derby is two, and this is three overall. And the reason that the first one is two is because of the atmosphere. That's why it wins out over this most recent one. But Galaxy fans are going to be struggling to explain this for a while, and it may be a while before we get another derby. So, you know. They're going to have to sit in this for a little bit. Oh, that's a beautiful statement right there. I can I could bask in that for a while. That's lovely. They can stand. They can lay down. They can do all of it. Well, at this point, I think we'd like to go ahead and transition the conversation into the interview portion of the show with us. Obviously, we know it's late for you, so we'll try not to, to keep you too long. Thank you for joining us uh, from across three time zones here. That's most appreciated. Happy but to do We kind of want to start the conversation with how you fell in love with the beautiful game. So what were some of those quote unquote to steal from a show you might be more familiar with first football memories? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I would say my dad is Guyanese and uh, Guyana shares a border with Brazil. So he would tell me about like going, cause I grew up in New York. He would tell me about going across the river to see Pele at the Meadowlands. We had soccer balls in the house. Like it was just a natural thing for me to 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 be doing. I have a ball at my at my foot from a young age. But in terms of actually watching and following and you know eventually covering, I would say it was probably the 2006 World Cup played in Germany, won by Italy. At the time, I was working in Pelham Parkway in the Bronx, which is a very heavily Italian uh, part of the Bronx. So if I wasn't paying attention yet, I could hear what was going on just like walking through the neighborhood and past the bars, which were you know, packed with people. And at the time, I'm still like, why do they care so much? What's going on right now? And I figure it out. They win. They do a little mini parade down Pelham Parkway. I went to it. That kind of got me into it. By the time it came back around, I was more aware. The 2010 Cup in South Africa was the first one that I watched all the way through. The U.S. had a decent showing in that. The Blue Buzuela took over New York City for the summer. And then in 2011, the Women's World Cup. I really fell in love with both World Cups in that same cycle. By the time it came back for 2014 and 2015, I was already in college. I had my journalism degree. I was interning for the journal and I had to figure out a beat because, you know, I couldn't, as an intern, pitch a Jets or a Yankees story. It was just going to get taken by the Jets or Yankees writer. And after that happened to me a couple of times, I think it was the Jets beat writer, uh, Stu Wu, who took me out to lunch and kind of just laid it flat. Like, look, you're an ant among dinosaurs. You can never go after something that one of us is going to want because you're not going to get it. You have to find something that no one cares about. At that time, it was NYCFC, which was still a year away from kicking the ball for the first time. It was kind of building its supporter culture. I was really fascinated by that process. 
especially doing so in a market that already had an incumbent team and an original team in the Red Bulls. And I, I kind of just embedded myself in that effort, in that endeavor. And it happened during a World Cup year. So that was like a summer of an immense amount of soccer for me. And then by the time NYCFC kicked the ball for the first time, you know, I was, I was hooked on it. Even though I was on the ground at Yankee Stadium, I was 10 feet away from Villa when he scored NYCFC's first goal, 18th minute against the New England Revolution, if memory serves. And these are moments that, that stick with me and that tell me I'm, I'm exactly where I should be. And, you know, it, it just grows and grows. I go down to Brazil for the 2016, obviously, for the last two years since the debacle against Germany, the country's kind of been like lukewarm on football. And I was sitting in the Maracanã when their love of football came back when they won that gold medal against Germany in the Olympic final. I marched out of that stadium with them, singing in the parade, not understanding a damn word of what I was saying. And the next days in Rio were just absolute magic. The difference in the atmosphere around the place, it was tangible. You, you could almost taste it. And I love the idea of sport being able to bring people together on this level. Like the community of it has always been what drew me. And soccer has the biggest supporter community of all sports in the world. So that's kind of what gives it the, the nod above all of the other major American team sports that are only really played in America. Like I love basketball. I enjoy American football. And obviously I'm a huge baseball fan, but soccer is definitely my be all end all. And it's because I can go anywhere in the world and find a group of people that are passionate about a team and talk to them about this game. Guys, we really got to stop getting guests that help me relive German national team losses. I feel like every <laughs> guest we have on the show has to bring up some time we lost the game. I, get, I gave you 7-1 against Brazil as yeah, well. Yeah, he touched on both. <laughs> that, was, that was, I mean, arguably the greatest game I've ever watched was that 7-1. I got to watch it with my sister, who's a, a huge German national team fan as well, too. And and as unbelievable as that scoreline was, every goal as it went in and living through it, that's, that's all right. Any chance to relive that is, is a beautiful Well, here. Uh, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one better. I covered that. I was covering the Wall Street. I was doing the live blogging for the Wall Street Journal during the 2014 World Cup. And that match occurred on the journal's 125th birthday. So there's cake and champagne being served on every floor of the office. Now, my job is basically to update the feed on every goal and do a little photo, write a little nugget about how the goal was scored. I don't have the photos, though. We have a photo guy who sends me the photos as soon as they come across the wire. Photo guy gets up to get his cake and champagne in maybe the 12th or 13th minute and was gone for 10 or 15 minutes. By the time he sits down, I'm like four goals behind. I'm screaming at him, like blowing his phone up. You're going to get me fired. What are you doing? They're, these goals are coming faster than I can pull anything off of the wire. I'm drowning over here. So for me, I had a very different experience with Germany's goals for no other reason than I was not able to do my job in the, in the moment where they were coming in. And I'll never forget it because my advisor comes up to me and is like, so uh, what's going on with the feed? Gabba was getting cake and champagne. I'm back on it. He's back on it. We're good. I'm sorry. Thanks. Head down the whole time. <laughs> Did that guy get fired? Use the cake and champagne excuse with my boss. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. The cake and champagne defense, man. The cake and champagne defense. No one was fired. It was forgiven because of the fervor of the moment. It's like, how many times is that going to happen? 
it was just kind of a Murphy's Law perfect storm type of deal. Yeah, but I, I was that game because of that. Yeah, I was actually in Brazil. I was there in Rio when Brazil beat Colombia, and I was like at the height of when that Rio was rocking. And then I was yeah, there. I thought they were gonna win that tournament. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the next match, the next day after that, like the streets were dead. Like <laughs> it was so crazy. So that's so it was the opposite for me. The streets were when they realized that the they that the men's team had to face Germany in the Olympic final, there was this moment of, oh God, no. Can we can we just can we not? I'm not going to that game. The ticket prices like dropped because people weren't buying them at the rate that was expected. It was hilarious. And you know, it goes the way it goes. And like I said, absolute fervor. We I actually got stuck. Like the whole city shut down for that Brazil Colombia game. I remember because uh, we watched the Germany France game, Jonathan, and it was a good match. And I was trying to get back to to no, you guys. You guys won. Why are you putting your thumbs down? Oh, that's uh, oh I'm sorry. Yeah, I was yeah. Thinking. I was trying to go back to the you know we we were off the beach a couple a few blocks in, and I was trying to get back down from Maracanã because it's very inland compared to the beach and. I was just stuck, and I was just in a neighborhood, and just watching that match was ridiculous. I'm glad I didn't get a ride back because being like in the hood, like just at the the foothills of before the favelas, it was just real. Like the love, the love and the pride that that the whole country was feeling after the Colombia game. Yeah, it's interesting. You guys tell these stories of going to the World Cups and you're watching them, and I, you know. I would watch like the U.S. men's national team, and then when it got to maybe like the final four, I would watch like those matches. But I really had told myself like, okay, you know, when I started doing the podcasting, getting into LAFC, I was like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to a World Cup. I'm gonna go to the next one, and then I find out that it's in Qatar, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to that one. But uh, it's I'm interested, you know, the next World Cup that comes around, I'm definitely going to, you know take in as many of the matches as possible because I've never actually done that yet, you know? So I, I listened to all these stories that you guys say about watching all these matches and it just, it, I'm eager, eager to have that experience myself. It's great. Well, next one after that should be a little easier uh, to go visit. Mm -hmm. so. Well, I mean, it's provided that, provided that we get to host, right? Because there was talk about that recently about uh, Los Angeles, you know, is, is jockeying to try and be one of the uh, host cities for some of the matches. We'll get but, one. So. Yeah, you okay. would think so, but well, and then I, you know, Coliseum, yeah. You imagine going to Canada or Mexico and <laughs> flights in between international flights just to go to matches. I mean, I was I did it once this year already down to Mexico to go see a match and was had tickets and airfare and everything ready to go do the second time, but the the right. Rona rug got pulled out. And the Estadio Azteca is one of three stadiums in the world that is on. It's been on my bucket list for over 10 years and yeah. same thing i had my airfare i had my airbnb i was so i was like i'm gonna get to see not only do i get to go to the estadio azteca but i get to watch lafc play in it amazing but you know a dream deferred hopefully not forever the uh and i mean the outcome too of, of the conca champions is i mean i guess they're just moving on right because they're like hey okay the winner of this tournament gets a spot and next just, year yeah that's yeah it's, it's <laughs> it, 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 it's like uh, holding a funeral for someone that's still alive right <laughs> <laughs> i i just i i don't get it you know it's i i think that enough time has passed to where people are like there's no time to finish this year's conca champions like there's just there's just no way i don't know why they don't come out and flat out say hey okay it's not 
it's not going to be played anymore. The end of this tournament is going to mark the beginning of an awkward situation where the winner is sitting there like, all right, so when does 2021 CONCACAF start? And the participants <laughs> in 2020 are like, all right, hold up, chill. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, we still need to play in this. And I mean, and, and then there's also, uh, which, what is it, the Clausura right now that has their championship that's coming mm -hmm. up? And their apertura is about to start. So, you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of clubs that are earning their spots to the CONCA champions. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, and like you said, an awkward situation that's going to be coming up is, soon. The yeah, football world is not built for, uh, for stoppages like this. It, it throws everything into flux. And it's going to be interesting how, how they decide to go about moving forward for sure. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of games next year. I think we got so many tournaments that are now stacked up and they might even have to push stuff scheduled for 2021 back even further just to, to try and have a full schedule here. But before we digress too far down the international soccer path here, you had mentioned your work with um, the Wall Street Journal and you'd mentioned covering New York City FC. Can you connect the dots for us how being a journalist there in New York City becomes being a journalist here in Los Angeles? Uh, yes, I covered the first two years, 2015 and 2016, for NYCFC. I got to do interviews with you know David Villa and Frank Lampard when he finally arrived, Andrea Pirlo when he announced his signing, and it was it was just so much fun. And I got so close to I was able to you know establish relationships, going to every game with multiple members of the players. You know their goaltender Josh Saunders, midfield their uh, former U.S. national team member Mix Discarude. Quaduo Poku. I, I, there's so many people who I remember fondly from that team. And that was kind of the first team that I covered consistently on a semi-beat uh, status. I wasn't covering every game or writing for every game, but I would go to every game to build these relationships. I was going to every event to you know, learn about the supporter culture and how they decided to go about uh, you know, creating that. And I thought that they did some things well, and I thought that they made some mistakes. I didn't think that it was a perfect launch by any means, but you know, LA, uh, NYCFC is firmly entrenched in the MLS dynamic now. New York is a two-market city, and that experiment was successful. When I looked at, you know, from that point, call it 2016, 27, 2017, 2018, I'm looking at LAFC's development. You know, basically on kind of the same timeline, but they're doing things a little bit differently. They haven't chosen one supporter group to be the favorite child of the team. They are allowing it to progress naturally in multiple supporter groups, incumbent and new or budding on different parts of the city. The stadium, the fact that they got the land, where the land was, the decision to push back the debut from 17 to 18 to make sure it was all right. All of that kind of, you know, combined in my head to say that this could be like a really, really impressive launch. I, after I got back from the 2016 Olympics, I had to decide whether I wanted to cover Atlanta United or Los Angeles Football Club. And I picked LA. I thought both launches would be spectacular and they both have ended up being so, you know, obviously talking about two of the powerhouses in the league currently. But I thought that if it hit in LA, it would be bigger news. It would be a bigger deal. It would There would be more space for more words to cover it because Los Angeles is a bigger city than Atlanta. And I stand by that. I think I made the right decision in that department. Obviously, I'd have covered a championship season if I'd gone down to Atlanta, but I think that I had more fun covering the 20 LAFC's 2019 season, regular season, than I would have had covering that 2017 Atlanta year, just because 
of everything that went into it from on the supporter side. The supporters are really what makes covering LAFC so special. And, you know, like I said, the supporter culture is what makes soccer so special to me. Once I put two and two together and realized that this had the chance to be you know, basically what it's become, I knew I wanted to come out here and kind of get another perspective of MLS expansion. I called it the great American soccer experiment for a while because this whole era of expansion is like, all right, if you expand too wide too quickly, you could just stretch yourself, tear yourself. But the league is doing it in a way where it's creating these communities everywhere it goes or absorbing successfully existing communities from lower divisions. And, you know, it, I just enjoy it. So since you've integrated yourself into the LAFC football community, you've also found yourself a prominent member within the LAFC pod fam as well, too. Um, describe meeting up with those boys at Season Pass and FCFC and how that relationship has come about. I met Alex Dwyer walking into a match. I don't remember which match it was, but it was one of the first matches of the 2018 season. Uh, once, you know, the, the, it might have actually been the game against Seattle. Uh, I was walking through the USC Rose Garden. He was coming over from Budlong. I was coming from the Metro. And, uh, you know, the stash meets the dreads, as we like to say. And <laughs> we started talking football and we were uh, seated next to each other in the in the match, and you know, we, me and Dweez kicked it off pretty quickly because we figured out that we were both uh, travel addicted football fans that like basically followed tournaments around the world with our spare cash. We've both done it. Uh, I was planning uh, my latest one into Europe. Still, he was fresh back from uh, living in China. There was a lot to talk about, and. Um, Neither of us knew what we were doing with this LAFC coverage. He was doing it for MLS soccer. I was still trying to work my way through doing it for the athletic, but that never really gained any traction. Uh, but we did know that regardless of what happened with our print livelihoods, we wanted to be able to create a lane that would exist exclusive of, of that. And, you know, obviously a few different podcasts sprung up, but we wanted to find a lane that was unique. And so we used our unique access, the level of access to create a pod that's all about the X's and O's, um, you know, with commentary and, and perspective straight from the coaches and the players. And that was the birth of season pass. FCFC, I believe I was their fourth guest talking about Dweez, Slim, and Spice. And then I uh, guest hosted um, the Tom Penn episode and uh, a couple of other ones. And these days I do um, a lot of the editing for it and I'm happy to be involved on both sides. It's you know, it's the same thing as the as the LAFC community. It's a family. And I love heading over to Budlong and, you know, talking sports, talking culture, talking life with those guys. And you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for the time. And I'm really thankful to have met, you know, so many people who do the exact same thing with the exact same desire. You know, look, coming, crossing paths with like-minded individuals is one of my favorite things in life. And this community is filled with so many good people that, you know, we're... It, we, we travel to Mexico together. We get frozen for four months in a pandemic, but it doesn't really stop the traction. The, the pod fam chat gets going. The group Skype, um, the mob sessions get going. And we kind of do what we can to, you know, stay close and stay close to each other and stay close to the team. And that's that's exactly the type of community that I thought I was going to find when I first moved out here. And now I'm in it. So, you know, I'm blessed. Well, you've sort of touched on our final question for you already with that last answer. 
But every guest that comes on the show seems to find their own unique way of answering this question. So, Mr. Wallace and sir, what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you? To me, when I think of shoulder to shoulder, I think of the I think of the North End, man. I think of the jump for LA Football Club Chan. I think of, you know, arms locked in unison, a one collective voice. You know, uh, I, I could wear the word out of family. Having the man to your, the back of the man to your left, the back of the man to your right, and knowing that they've both got your back. It's rare in this world, but for some reason, sports seems to be one of the, one of the primary conduits to that type of relationship with people that, you know, your best mates with or people that you don't know. It's the idea that just wearing the same football shirt as somebody gives you a level of uh, a familiarity with them. Even if you don't know where they came from, their name or where they're going, you know, you can just you could pass someone in the street wearing an LAFC jersey or LAFC hat, especially after a match like last night, and just nod your head and they'll nod their head back. And, you know, that that's it. That that moment, that that piece of human interaction, that that's what shoulder to shoulder means to me. Well, whether those shoulders are six feet apart here in Los Angeles or a nation apart with you, sir, over in Florida, thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us tonight. Thank you for taking on personal risk to yourself to go and be there and be able to provide us coverage direct from Florida. Uh, that is sincerely appreciated by all of us here, as is you joining us tonight. So thank you, sir. And I enjoyed, I enjoyed it first time, hopefully not the last. Uh, you guys are always welcome on FCFC or Season Pass. I love the cross-pollination, the synergy between the pods. I'm a big fan of it. So, you know, we'll, con we'll be continuing to work. I'll be continuing to cover this tournament. And, you know, if you guys want some more insight from this one, I know that there's not a lot of options, but I'm a happy one for you, whatever you need. Wow. Well, we'll save this number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, th hey, thank you again, Ryan. We really appreciate it. And, you know, you staying up with the time change and things like that for this interview. It, uh, it was great, man. It was, you know, hopefully when this is all said and done, we can all get together and hang out in the backyard, dude. That's it. That's that. That's the dream, man. Just looking for that, looking for whatever semblance of normal we're going to get back so we can get back to doing what we do. Dude, I got a mountain of tea here waiting for Dweez. We were going to do this whole, like, cognac episode on FCFC. We had this whole idea behind everything. And then... Rona came and blew the whole thing up. So one of these days, I'll come to the backyard and get you drunk, I promise. Just keep that idea, man. Keep it on ice. <laughs> so, but with that, guys, uh, everyone stay safe. <laughs> Remember to give everyone a follow. RC Wallerson is the user handle of our guest, Ryan, and at LAFCS2S for here at the podcast. Leave us some comments. Rate on iTunes or, or Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you catch your podcast. And if you are interested in coming on as a guest, let us know, man. This is now the time. Come out and tell us your story. You know, it, it can be uh, just tell us your why. Tell us why you're an LAFC fan. You don't have to necessarily be someone that is writer in the community or part of the 3252. If you're just the average fan and you want to tell us your story, please let us know. We'll get you on. So uh, with that, from Chris, Christian, and Jonathan, uh, take us home, Sticks. We'll see you guys soon. Shoulder to shoulder. Together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay fly in the FC door, son. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's, Koreatown Liddy. Cape so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that back.